so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Jason Cook went to school and pastored in some of the most segregated areas in the South. And he's currently on staff at a racially diverse church in Memphis, Tennessee. So when he talks about race and ministry, we should pay attention. Listen in as he asks the question, should we give up on multi-ethnic ministry? My hope is for the next uh, 30 to 35 minutes, uh, perhaps convince you to not do a multi-ethnic church and then encourage you to continue to press on in the multi-ethnic church, okay? Uh, the first half of this talk is a little bit like B-Rabbit in um, 8 Mile when he enters the final battle and he basically tells everything about himself first to disarm his opponent so that the mouth of a liar might be stopped. In a similar way, there's a lot of uh, unhealthy expectations we carry into this uh, very noble idea of planting a multi-ethnic church. So I want to spend some time doing that. And then I want to take about 15 to 20 minutes just to answer questions. So as we're going and you've got a question that comes to your mind, feel free to write it down. And here in a moment, we're going to have a microphone just here off the stage to my right, your left. And if you've got a question, then we'll line up at the microphone there. A little bit of information about me, and this will all make sense here in a moment. Uh, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, in a part of the city where uh, it was predominantly black. It was a neighborhood directly affected by white flight. My father, who grew up in a similar neighborhood, moved us out of the neighborhood to the quote-unquote suburbs, but at the time, it was just country. Uh, And on the street behind me lived a very proud Klansman who flew the banner, uh, frequently walked around with his uh, regalia on, Uh, and who we suspect was the culprit for the deaths of pets and destruction of property. So I grew up in a very racialized Birmingham, Alabama, all right? And it was very polarizing. Really, the only people outside of my family that I really had any relationship with were the few white people that I went to school with. But for the most part, it was, I was grown, I grew up in a place that said black people hang out with black people, white people hang out with white people. However, being a scholastically inclined young man, I was in gifted classes. Being an athlete, I found myself on teams in these racially diverse spaces. High school, my parents moved us to Northeast Atlanta, and Northeast Atlanta is becoming a melting pot. My county alone in Northeast Atlanta, which is Gwinnett County, we got any Gwinnettians in here? No, that's all right. Uh, Gwinnett County, the county alone has two million people, and at least half of those people are non-white. So the high school that I went to, all the sports teams that I went to, the churches that I went to were multi-ethnic spaces, right? So God began to birth within me as I felt this pull as a black guy in largely white space, right? And yet, uh, at the same time, a, a, a distinctly different black man in black space. So essentially... Uh, when I was in middle school, I was essentially too white to hang out with black people and too black to hang out with white people. Now, much of those distinctions were based on stereotypes, which we'll kind of look at here in a moment. I say all that to say, two years ago, God called me here to Memphis to become a pastor at Fellowship Memphis, which for the last 10 years has been the model for me and how I desire to not only plant churches, but to do ministry. And the reason that Fellowship Memphis is so unique is that it's a multi-ethnic church that was founded by a trio of men, one of them African-American. His name is Brian Loritz. It was founded by those men 
And when they decided that it was multi-ethnicity they wanted to pursue, the lead pastor, a white man, told Brian Loritz, a black man, we will never become multi-ethnic until you're the lead pastor. He gave him the keys and Brian began to drive the church. Now, I say all that to say today at Fellowship Memphis, we are a multi-ethnic church and I would contend that the multi-ethnic church is an aspect of King's dream realized. Now, it is the place where we do not truncate race. We don't make little of race and ethnic distinctions. We celebrate it. We don't make little of the expressions of our ethnic distinctions. So uh, I was having a conversation with a church member about a Doc Watts hymn. Do y'all know what a Doc Watts hymn is? Uh, There are moments in my sermon where I will sing a Doc Watts hymn. Many of my white friends had no idea what that is. If you've ever seen The Preacher's Wife and you've heard the song, I Love the Lord, He Heard My Cry, it is a quintessential Dr. Watts hymn, a lining, call and response. And yet, the great kind of hymnody that came out of the more predominantly white traditions, we have that as well. Now, my goal, I did all that to get to this point. And this is where the the disillusionment comes in. The multi-ethnic church is not the answer to racism. All right? I want to make that plain up front. The multi-ethnic church is not the answer or cure to racism because, baby, we got some folks in our church that are just as racist as anybody else, okay? I will say this, though, that the multi-ethnic church provides the healthiest medium and avenue to effectively deal with racism. Now, when we begin to think about what uh, multi-ethnic churches really are, I want to recommend a book to you. It's called The Elusive Dream by Dr. Corey Edwards. Dr. Edwards is a black woman who's a sociologist at The Ohio State University, Um, and she has written a book where she's done a study of a multi-ethnic church, and she goes through and basically concludes, spoiler alert, that many multi-ethnic churches are white spaces in disguise. And what she basically says is that not only the leadership, but the polity of those churches tend to more reflect the kind of white norms of many institutions and many church institutions. So when we begin to think about multi-ethnic space, one of the things I want to challenge you up front is how do we create a space that fosters multi-ethnicity that is not simply white space in sheep's clothing? Does that make sense? Uh, One of the things that I think we can do is we have a robust understanding of how the Bible treats or lack thereof, the idea of race. Um, Multi-ethnicity is at the heart of God's redemptive program. When we're opened up to the scriptures very early on in Genesis 12, we're introduced to a man named Abraham. Y'all know Abraham, God. uh, Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. I'm pretty sure you are too, right? And in the covenant that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 12, where he's basically saying, I'm going to call you to a land. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you blessing. uh, And But there's also this really interesting blessing. He said, and through you, the nations will be blessed. Now, if you were to trace the covenants of God uh, from Noah through Abraham, even the Mosaic covenant, onto the Davidic covenant and into the new covenant, there is a blessing for the nations. When you begin to survey the Old Testament and you begin to look at people individually, You see Abraham. Abraham was not a Jew. We begin to consider people like Rahab, who's in the lineage of Jesus, a prostitute who herself is not a Jew. We could go on and talk about Ruth and her Moabite heritage. And over and over and over again, throughout all the scriptures, we find multi-ethnicity is at the heart of God. So I believe We should not give up on the multi-ethnic church because to give up on the multi-ethnic church is to abandon God's heart. I don't fully believe that for those of us who are called into the multi-ethnic church, and baby, it's a calling because it's hard. It'll be the hardest work that you've ever done. uh, um, This is just a a parenthetical reference. Um, 2016 really rocked us as a church, and I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. But I had a conversation Uh, within a span of three days, okay, uh, an older white couple comes to me and they say, Pastor, 
we're leaving the church. Okay, why? Uh, well, we just think that you guys talk about race too much. So I go to this brother and I'm sitting down with this brother and we're having breakfast. He cooks me an omelet. It was fire. Uh, so we have omelet, we have bacon and coffee and we're standing there talking and he's kind of giving me all these reasons and I'm lovingly kind of pushing back. And ultimately at the end of the day, he felt the church had changed because he felt we talked about race too much. Uh, a day later, I get an email from a black couple in our church and they want to meet. So we meet and it was an older black couple and they say, Pastor, we're leaving your church. Well, why are you leaving the church? Because we don't feel like you talk about race enough. We don't feel like our own interests are being represented, right? So it's a bit of whiplash, right? Now, I play football, so I'm used to hitting grown men as hard as I can. From time to time, you see stars, but you know it's part of it. But when you get into a relational setting where neither people group, if we're just talking black and white here, if neither people group feels comfortable, but then what's the proper recourse? The point is, in this work, it's so hard because the end game, the field goal posts continue to move. We might say that the field goals post, the end zone, if you will, of multi-ethnic ministry is Christ-likeness, it is unity, it is reconciliation, which are all really good biblical words, but tell me what that looks like. No one knows. What we're doing in the multi-ethnic church movement, I'm convinced then, we have to be solidly convinced from Scripture that this is what God has called us to and that this is at the heart of God. We love Ephesians 2. And the thing about Ephesians 2 that I love is, yes, the dividing wall of hostility being broken down. It is the blood of Christ. Yes, I love that. It is being reconciled. I even like the back part of Ephesians 2 where it talks about that you yourselves are being built into a holy temple to the Lord for God to dwell in. I dig that. But there's one word in Ephesians 2 that blows my mind. And that is the word one. Because Paul's employment of that word is not simply a rehashing of something that used to be. So when we read in Ephesians 2 that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility with himself, bringing, making peace between us, right? Joining, making one new man from the two, that one there. It's not like iOS update 11.0.1. Right? Or it's not like the latest version of the Jordan. I don't even know what number Jordans they are, man. I, don't, I can't afford Jordans. Let's call it Jordan 33. It's not a new version of something that we've seen. It is the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. Right? It's the Model T Ford. It's Henry Ford fashioning and creating something the world has never seen. And when it comes to, in my region, I've grown up in the South my whole life in a racialized society that we live in. No one knows what it really looks like. So as we endeavor to get there, it's going to mean that we're constantly evaluating, trying new methods and tactics. But if we're not biblically convinced that this is what God has called us to, has called you to, and it means that you must sacrifice everything you prefer on that altar. If we're not willing to do that, then let's not do it. Now, there's a lot of things in my talk that, quite honestly, I had to change because, like, I didn't realize that Dr. Moore and Charlie was going to bring that heat like that yesterday, right? <laughs> but I'm convinced that we should not give up on the multi-ethnic church because there is a biblical heavenly mandate, Okay. I'm also convinced that we should not give up on the multi-ethnic church because of the missional implications. I was reading this latest issue of National Geographic uh, last week. Yes, I still get National Geographic. I grew up a nerd. I love watching Nat Geo. It's why, you know what I'm saying, I grew up like, you know, you know what I mean, like around people that just didn't get me because when everybody else was outside playing, I was like reading Time Magazine at seven. But this latest issue of National Geographic, I encourage you to get it. It's, it's appropriately entitled The Race Issue. And there are a couple startling revelations that they make as they look at the concept of race. One of the things I loved was they did a segment on Africa, how Africa itself is the most diverse continent 
in the world. And how Africans themselves across the diaspora are more diverse than really any other continent can boast. I also thought it was interesting, they posited that by 2044, get this, 2044, that's in 26 years, that non-white Hispanic people, brothers and sisters in this country will be, for the first time, children under 18, non-white Hispanic will outnumber white children in America. Now that's interesting. What it tells you is that America is browning and our churches are not. If America is browning and our churches are not, then missionally, just thinking in terms of evangelism, if we're talking about taking the gospel to all tribes, nations, and people, if that includes primarily our immediate context, then how does the church maintain missional clout if the people in the church no longer look like the majority of the population. Now, you bring in the 2016 presidential election, and there are many disillusioned young black men and women, myself included, that continue to look upon our current context with contempt for many reasons. This presidential election was incredibly difficult for our team, and I'll tell you why. I work on a team of pastors. I'm not the lead pastor of our church. John Bryson is. And JB has constructed a team that is multi-ethnic. We are very different people. Even the black people on the team, black folks, y'all know, ain't all black people alike. We are not monolithic. We all think differently. We've got our own personalities. We've got our own opinions. So even the African-Americans on our staff all think differently. So the presidential election happens. And the whole time leading up, right, people are saying, We've got to speak, we've got to speak, we've got to speak, we've got to speak. And we've got folks that are speaking. But there's a tension within the multi-ethnic church. When you've got whites who worship in your church, or even, let's just not even assign a racial distinction to them. Let's say you've got Trump voters in your church who are very proud Trump voters, right? But even all Trump voters are not created equal. There are people who held their nose, who wrestled and prayed over that decision, and they ultimately made the decision they felt God was leading them to. And yet, you've got people on the other side who did the exact same thing, godly people who made the best decision they could and were all somewhere kind of smattered in there. Here's the difficult part. This presidential election, it became personal. And it became an, uh, an assault and it became an offense on the personhood and dignity of women and black and brown bodies to the point where we're looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ as if to say, how will you not fight for me? People on our staff disagreeing about what we should do as a church. If you're in a mono-ethnic church, it's a little bit easier to navigate those waters, even if you are on different political pages. But in a multi-ethnic church, what do you do when your staff is divided on what you should do in response to the church? I would maintain that our answers to such questions will play into the missional credibility of our church and your church. So here's what we did. As a team, we came together. We decided what we were going to say, what we were not going to say. And as a team, we came together and we all, because we trusted one another, we made a decision that many of us disagreed with, but we ran with it because for us, the love and unity of our church superseded the need to affirm or deny one political party. Now, when we did that, uh, we had people leave our church. We had people join our church. But the point of the matter is, if you're people in your church, particularly minorities, do not feel like their voice is being heard, they will leave. And when you consider that the browning of America will mean that we must increasingly consider and meet our brothers and sisters of color where they are, then that means we've got to change tactics. And why am I focusing so much on minorities? Here's the point. The most vulnerable people in a multi-ethnic church are minorities. 
because it's minorities who give up the most to become a part of that work. Minorities are giving up aspects of their culture. They're giving up aspects of their person. They're submitting themselves to the onslaught of microaggressions from well-meaning whites in their context. They are themselves taking themselves and risking their own uh, relational credibility with other people who look like them in that space. So if we're to continue to not give up on the multi-ethnic church, then with pastorally sensitive hearts, as we consider and count brothers and sisters better than ourselves, then we must go to them. And I find that when we take care of, when we pray for, when we visit and go see our brothers and sisters in that context, what you find is a people who will endure because they believe the mission and the vision of that church is bigger than themselves. Just another note on uh, missional responsibility of the multi-ethnic church. Uh, a buddy of mine went to Ghana a couple of years ago. He's a, he is a pastor in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He is the president of the local NAACP uh, chapter in Tuscaloosa. Solid brother, let us do so he's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to Ghana. I was like, cool, Doc, let me know how it goes. So he goes to Ghana. You know, I'm seeing all these pictures. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. It looks like so much time, uh, so much fun. And we're having a conversation, and uh, he said that the people were surprised to see an African-American in Africa. And I thought that was really interesting, that they were surprised to see an African-American in Africa. Which got me thinking that the multi-ethnic church has implications not just for our ministry in our respective context, but it's also got global implications. When you consider the long-range effects of colonialism, where you've got an entire race of people that have been forced to become reliant on the technology and uh, benefactorial uh, beneficence of whites, what you get is a people that have a interesting culture where it's only white faces they see. Now, I want to be very careful when I tread here because I think global missions is not only important and necessary, but it is absolutely essential to the Great Commission. And I also believe that there are people doing incredible work overseas, not just on the continent of Africa, but in the 240 window, in the Middle East, and close countries out east. I mean, it's Amazing to see the, the body of Christ on mission. But I also can't help but to wonder how often do we sacrifice our effectiveness overseas because we won't go across the street. I know churches that have budgets, missions budgets of millions of dollars. Praise God that that money is going across the, the, the world to foster evangelism and church planning across the world, but there is a church planner in your city struggling to keep the lights on and you won't allocate part of your budget to go help them? Uh, local church ministry, the missional clout and credibility of the church is at stake. Why, why would I ever recommend a person of color to submit themselves to the difficulty that exists within the walls of a church that wants to be multi-ethnic and yet has not counted the cost, especially if that means that I've got to give up all of this stuff and then you're not even going to take care of my own people in this city. You see, the missional implications of the multi-ethnic church, I believe we shouldn't give up on it because if we take our global visions for evangelism and the Great Commission, and we, at least in part, translate that into a healthy theology of city and context, then what we will find is that our missional efforts abroad will only be buttressed by our efforts on the ground here at home. I think about a story that my friend told me, and as he told me the story of this African woman weeping, because she's touching his skin and she can't believe it's real. You're an American, but your skin looks like mine. How powerful would it be if the American church were sending missionaries with brown, black, and olive skin to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? So in short, if the church doesn't change its strategy, the church will die. 
She'll either be starved out because of her lack to conform and transform. She'll either be run out because the quote-unquote white American evangelical church is dying and she'll be run out by the changing demographics. Or the Lord will sift her out because of her lack of faithfulness. And what will stand in the wake of that? It's the multi-ethnic church. That's why we can't give up. People are abandoning mainline denominations at alarming rates, my friends, running for the hills. And I can tell you story after story after story of people who walk into healthy multi-ethnic churches where their culture is represented, where their languages are spoken, where people love chitlins and neck bones and oxtails, where they feel like their personhood is validated and the word that comes to their mind most often is, this feels like home. Home. I believe we shouldn't give up on the multi-ethnic church because there's a biblical mandate to not give up on the multi-ethnic heart of God. I believe we shouldn't give up on the multi-ethnic church because the missional implications of it. But I think we shouldn't give up the multi-ethnic church because history is against us. In my church, I've just finished developing a 21-week curriculum on race, justice, and the gospel. It's three classes, and all three are successive. The first class that we've just finished is a class on the history of the development of race. We begin in the Bible when we understand that the Bible doesn't know the socially constructed concept of race. The Bible deals in the concept of ethnicity and culture. But what happened, because human men and beings and we're all sinful and jacked up, what happened was that those in power began to exploit the color of skin backed by pseudoscientific fact to assert their supremacy over those with darker skin, which led to, over time, the captivation of people. Uh, I was watching the History Channel because, well, I mean, what else would I be doing at the crib? And I was introduced to the, I believe it's the 21st Dynasty in Egypt. Uh, the 21st Dynasty in Egypt is characterized by the nickname of the Black Pharaohs. But you don't learn about them in your history books, and there's a good reason. I'll tell you why. Uh, during the 19th and 20th Dynasty, Egypt experienced great prosperity, both in world power and in opulence in adoration. One of the things that we begin to see during that time period is we've already begun to see some uh, building of pyramids, but we start to begin to see the construction of obelisks. Obelisks, uh, if you think of uh, the George Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., that's an obelisk. It's a four-sided geometric figure with a four-sided pointed top, right? It's a big, tall, pointy thing, basically, right? Well, when we also consider Egyptian culture, it is a culture heavy laden, meaning there are, there's a ton of gold and precious jewels and diamonds. And that's good, fine, and well, if you never consider where those things come from. They're actually coming from the region of Cush, immediately south of Egypt. What was happening is the pharaohs were sending people into Cush to enslave and force these darker-skinned Africans to mine and pan for gold and precious jewels so that they might enslave them and fill their temples and their palaces and their homes and their jewelry with the very gold harvested off of the backs of dark-skinned Africans. Well, one day they got fed up. The Cushites decided they were going to have a revolt. And they marched into uh, Pharaoh's crib and they overthrew Pharaoh. Now, when they got there to Pharaoh's crib, they established for the first time in history a black Pharaoh on the throne of Egypt, which meant that a black Pharaoh ran the Middle East. After about 100 years of rule, Greeks... Uh, Egyptians of Greek origin named the Hyksos came in, they overthrew the black pharaohs and they uh, pushed them back down in a cush. Now, why that's so important is if you were to go to Egypt today, 
Every record of the black pharaohs has been scrubbed away from Egyptian history. They literally took chisels to all the monuments. To the monuments that were erected, they tore them down. Because the idea that a dark-skinned African sat on the throne in Egypt was such a blight and a black eye on their culture, they were embarrassed. Racism is not an American invention. And it's not even an American ideal. These things continue to persist over and over and over again. But from that ideology comes the American slave trade. And when you consider that African Americans have been in this country for 400 years, 1619 and maybe as early as 1608, the first slaves came to America. As Dr. Mason said, which I had to change this part of my talk to because everybody's changing my, stealing my thunder. Uh, as he said yesterday, we are approaching next year, the 400-year anniversary of when slaves were first brought to this country. Now, think of this. Here we sit on the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's murder, one year away from the 400-year anniversary of when the first Africans were brought here. When you consider that time span, then you would see that black and brown people in America have only been free for a quarter of America's history. And if that's true, then we've got to deal with the other 75% of America's history where black people were not even considered people. Just in 2010, many of you have did the, your U.S. census in 2010. Just in 2010, the census listed when they make you check a box for your ethnicity. I want you to read, listen to these. These were the options. Black, white, Asian, Japanese, Samoan, and American Indian. Think about how many other people had to click the box other. Is anyone biracial in here? You can't check a box. Is, is anyone from India in here? Does the Asian box fit you? No. All of these racial distinctions and categories that history has given us uh, force us to kind of live in a box where we're identifying people by the color of their skin. The very antithesis to what Dr. King actually wanted. He was not offering color blindness as a solution to the plight of the church, but color commendation. And the multi-ethnic church in the scope of history must stand as a place where we are actively seeking to reverse the abuses and the injustices of our fathers. There is a reason America is against us, but I believe that the cross of Christ and his blood is more powerful than the long-range wiles of history. I believe in the multi-ethnic church. I'm almost finished. I want to believe in, I believe in the multi-ethnic church and we shouldn't give up because there are biblical reasons, because there are missional reasons that history itself is against us. We must push back. But I also think, when I think about why I'm not giving up, I got too much skin in the game, man. I was at a Southern Baptist church. I'm going to put them on blast. I was at a Southern Baptist church in Birmingham just a couple of years ago where I was asked to come in and start a multi-ethnic church. My wife and I had helped to begin another church on the downtown part uh, in downtown Birmingham, where we, for a long time, were the only people of color. I was asked to come in to help begin a multi-ethnic church work in downtown Birmingham, assured from the front end that we're willing to, to, to do what it takes to, to get there. I'm thinking, bet, like this is going to be great. I'm in the crib. I'm at the hometown. Yeah, I mean, I'm about to go to your mama's and get some chicken and waffles and chop it up with people. By the way, your mama's, let me decode. Your mama's is a restaurant in Birmingham that serves like incredible chicken and waffles. And they got like your mama, like mama makes her own syrup every morning. And it's the one spot in the city where like black and white people mingle. You know what I mean? And then it's the chicken shack in Birmingham too. But less, less white people going there. But you know what I mean? Like we going in there like we doing the work, right? We're going to do the work. We're going to do the ministry. Like it's going to be great. I get into it and I realize quite quickly that that church is unwilling to make the necessary cultural concessions to allow an environment for people to feel at home. And what it did for me is it was a reminder that in this concept of home, I have really no home. Growing up in Birmingham as a black kid in all white classes, I felt like an alien. 
being on sports teams that were largely multi-ethnic, but I was a Christian, and most of my teammates, both in college and the league, they weren't really trying to live by the, you know what I'm saying, the laws of grace and love and truth and holiness. They was just trying to get it in. When I began to look at my own uh, college education, taking higher level courses, pushing myself academically, I found myself in a sea of white faces. And yet on Saturdays, I would play on the field with predominantly black men. I never felt at home. My wife herself is white. And so even within my own culture, there are people who would call me a sellout. I don't feel at home. And when my children grow up, my beautiful mocha swirl babies, as they grow up to try to find their place in this world, they will frequently find themselves the only people of color, the only people with black friends, the only people who look like them. They will not know what home looks like. But is this not the call that Christ calls us to when he tells us that this world is not your home, that we are passing through, we are strangers, we are aliens, we are sojourners as we await for our Lord to crack the sky and return to bring us home. And until we wait, my undying wish is that people in mono-ethnic cultures would experience what I know to be true at Fellowship Memphis, which is it is the closest thing to home in this earth I've ever felt where culture is affirmed, personhood is affirmed. I'm not the only black dude in a sea of white faces that my wife can't pick me out of a crowd. That my children have friends from other ethnicities, from other nations, that the world is at our church. I want every African-American, every Latino, Latina American to experience that. Home. Y'all, I can't give up too much. I got too much skin in the game. And there's a young man or a young woman who's going to come behind us who is going to desire that you had given them the gift of going second. Let me break that down. We need to give people the gift of going second. Why has the multi-ethnic church movement been so pressing the last 10 years? It's because the Americas had never seen anything like a gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic church. No one did it. No one did it. There were Pentecostal, there were charismatic communities throughout the world that were seeing some success, but in the many churches that we attend, no one did it. And yet God has placed this thing in our heart to go do it because someone else needs the gift of going second. They need to have the gift of not being the first one on the beach. They need to have the gift of not being the first one to have these hard conversations. They need to be the first one. They need to have somebody else be the first one to not have to figure out what all this looks like. They need the gift of going second. And that only happens, hear me, That only happens when we ourselves and the people that we minister to live cross-cultural lives. Did y'all know that a fish doesn't know the water is wet? Did y'all know that? It's called enculturation. And it's an example of what whiteness is. Many of our friends in, in the predominantly white church world don't really know what whiteness is. They can't really define whiteness, but if you ask them to define blackness or brownness, oh, they can tell you. Because the enculturation that involves meeting out and separating what it means to be a person, it's so intimately wrapped to skin color, it's hard to separate those things. So when we're talking about building multi-ethnic church, we should not give up because that nebulous antiseptic, enculturated idea of whiteness is being untwined. And for the first time in a lot of people's lives, the concept of anything other is being elevated to the same level of beauty. And the multi-ethnic church itself will stand as the place where those multiple identities can be upheld. But if you're a pastor in this room, 
and you're looking to have a multi-ethnic church, which, parenthetically, multi-ethnicism is simply the first hurdle we got to cross to getting to the heavenly mandate of cross-culturalism. We can talk about that in 20 years when we all start doing this, when one of y'all figure out what it looks like and we make that jump. But when I consider what it means to be a preacher, heralding the supremacy of Christ, being an ambassador for Jesus in that space, if we want multi-ethnic churches, healthy, culture, ethnicity-affirming multi-ethnic churches, then that means that you yourself must be at least bicultural because there's too many dead white men that make their way into your sermons. And it's too many references to obscure friends references in your sermons. It's too many Seinfeld jokes in your sermons. It's too many allusions to some aspect of culture that me not having grown up in it would have never encountered it had I not been forced to live in your culture. When it comes to heralding the word of God, it is the spirit of God speaking through personality. The effectiveness of the church is buttressed by a man who is submitted to the idea that my neighbor is not better than me and his culture is not so weird and I just don't get it, so I'm going to stay away. Uh-uh. That we go into hard space. I need some of y'all to go to the barbershop. I need some of y'all to go sit in the barbershop and just go sit and listen. I, I mean, I shake, you know what I'm saying? I, I had the LeBron going, y'all, so I just had to go ahead and take it all off. I ain't got money to get them plugs in my head, man. I'm a pastor. Some of y'all need to go to the, uh, to the beauty shop, find a friend, and, and ask if you can go in that spot and just sit and listen. Don't say nothing. Some of y'all need to go to the corner store and just kick it. Some of y'all need to find gyms that aren't in affluent all-white areas of town. We need to find spheres of influence for us to be in where we're at the very least being intersected with the things of cultures that aren't ours. And here's what gives me great hope. Many of you are doing that. Man, just the other day, I was in a part of town that most white people would never find themselves in, in a gym filled with black and brown kids at an after-school program. And man, what I saw were young, white men and women laboring, not out of paternalism, but out of a genuine care and desire to see the Imago Dei and those kids uplifted and for Christ to be known as supreme within their hearts. When I think about this very conference, and I just want y'all to know, it ain't a whole lot of old heads in the room. Have y'all noticed that? It ain't a whole lot of old heads. There's a lot of young folks in here. I'm 32 years old. I am young. I'm going to date myself. I was born the same day the space shuttle Challenger exploded, January 28, 1986, which means I'm young. But what I love is that there are young men and women here, you, who are coming to a conference, willing to sit and listen and learn. When I look at this conference, I see the future of the American church. I see the future of the church of Jesus Christ in America that possesses a spirit-led vitality, it possesses a recovery of the human dignity within every man and woman, and it possesses a courage that will not stand by and let injustice slide. I love it. You see, here's the thing. As America Browns and as, as many of these uh, staunch um, white churches that are either Protestant or liberal continue to move on and sometimes die out, what it looks like is for this people at this conference in 10 to 20 years, you will be the leaders of the church. You will be the future of the church. And it is a church that loves people. It's a church that loves Jesus. Okay. One last thing, then I'm going to be done. Uh, if you're a leader here, and even for those of us who may not be in a position of leadership, but we are those who have influence. I just want to say this. The world is watching. And this is the part about being in a multi-ethnic church. I just want to tell you that's a little bit discouraging, but I used to hit people in their face all day, so it kind of fires me up. Uh, everybody's waiting for you to mess up. Everybody's waiting for you to, to mess up, to make a mistake. Everybody's waiting for you to fail. And how you respond to that failure 
is so critical and important. We can either become so tired and weary and worn out that we drop the baton, that we drop the mantle. We get tired of being criticized. We get tired of being maligned. When white people tell us that we talk about race too much, when black people tell us that we don't talk about it enough, and when our Latino and uh, people of East Asian descent feel like they're completely ignored and neglected in our context, you're going to feel like quitting. And it's going to feel like it's a, a futile endeavor to even begin anything like this. But here's what I would say to you. Press on. It is worth it because if you read the book of Revelation, you get an idea. But what we're talking about is Ephesians 3. It's the manifold wisdom of God being put on display. And I like that word manifold there because manifold means multifaceted. So imagine a diamond, right? Some of y'all getting ready to get married. Maybe you even, you know what I'm saying, remember ring shopping with your wife. You know what I'm saying? You go to the jeweler having no idea what you're looking for. They have to school you and educate you in there. Cut color, clarity, uh, um, uh, carrot, all the, you know what I'm saying, the, the big C's and what that looks like, right? So you go in there and you pick that diamond, you know what I'm saying? You're trying to find that fire diamond that's going to put that twinkle in her eye. She don't need no diamond. That's American invention. I bought my wife a diamond. Anyway, um, but you think about a diamond and you never look and see the same diamond twice. Because that diamond has facets, and the facets allow the light to refract off that diamond in different ways every time you look at it. You never see the same diamond twice. Every time you see that diamond, it's new. The multi-ethnic church, the manifold wisdom of God is on display in his church so that every time someone looks at what we're doing, it always surprises them. How in the world did you get that to happen? And we can sit back and say, it wasn't by might nor by power, but by the spirit of God that this has happened. It is a beautiful thing when the people of God dwell together in the multifaceted, manifold beauty of God on display week in and week out throughout all of our cities and on mission in the world that gives witness and bears witness that our God is bigger than uh, artificial lines that we place between one another. And so, because of the Bible, because of the missional implications, because of history, because of my own personal skin in the game, I hope to give you hope that we should not give up on the multi-ethnic church. She's far too beautiful. All right, I'm done. Uh, but there's a microphone down here. My man Peter has a microphone. If you've got a question, here, let me, let me just say this too. I don't profess to speak on behalf of all multi-ethnic church planners. I don't profess to speak on behalf of all black people. I got my own mind, all right? Um, and I'm, I never been one to run with the herd. I mean, I just told you, I never feel at home. So I'm not going to be able to give you a sufficient answer to these. However, I will try to answer uh, your questions in the last 12 minutes. You talked about a church that you had personal experience with that was not willing to make the sacrifices or do the things that were necessary to have a multi-ethnic church. Mm -hmm. If we're considering doing a multi-ethnic church, what things do we need to be prepared to invest in or stay away from? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, uh, people jump to the first uh, kind of obvious public things. So they, they quickly jump to worship and preaching and small groups and even missional structures globally, right? And I think all of those need to be addressed. But some of the things were the general reluctance of the people to change any aspect of their life because it was too inconvenient. Right? When we ask people to link up with nonprofits, when we ask people to link up with schools, when we ask people to kind of get on board when it came to thinking about people differently, in a lot of ways, that was a struggle. So I would say there, there actually has to be a lot of ground that's hoed and worked before we get there. I'd also say this, that when we look to hire people to come in, that we're not hiring people who have different skin but the same culture. Okay? Like, we're not just hiring black people because of their skin, but those who are culturally adept and bicultural, because what we're looking for is transcultural people, folks who can move between these cultural lines in our city and in our church. But we also shouldn't sacrifice competence, character, calling, and qualification to get somebody in that position for the sake of having them. So I think, and when all of that's in place, then the powers that be in that church have to be willing to give up power 
and actually allow that man or woman to lead rather than adopting some idea that we want credit for doing this. They need to give space for that man or woman to lead. Good question. Yes, sir. Thank you, Jason. Great session. In a multi-ethnic church, would you talk a little bit about the cost that the typical African-American family feels and pays when they come to a multi-ethnic church on mission? Yeah. They really want to buy into the multi-ethnic vision, but there's a cost associated with that. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'll give you, I'll give you three cases. Uh, I mentored a young man. His name was Jacoby who lived in a part of our city that was uh, predominantly African-American and poor. Uh, I would bring him to church, and without anyone ever having said anything to him, he felt like a charity case. Uh, he felt like, <laughs> he actually said this, he said, all y'all pretty pink people in there sitting in there while I got to go back to my house with a hole in the roof, and I ain't got nothing, but y'all tell me y'all love me, right? So for him, it was a cultural, it was a socioeconomic difference Right, but he also felt intuitively that I don't belong here. Okay, uh, my grandmother came to the church that we helped to start, and my grandmother, may she rest in peace, she came to the church, and uh, you know it's a beautiful venue. It's kind of a, a, a very hipster esque part of town, uh, exposed brick wood, wood beams, concrete flooring. Um, you know the Christmas lights hanging from the ceiling. I mean, just looks like it's a, a picture out of a hipster. Uh, gentrification textbook. Um, but she comes in there and she says, she asked me, she says, who's the pastor? I said, I am, Grandma. She said, no, you're not. I said, what you mean? She was like, you're not the one in charge. Who's in charge? And I had to look at my grandmother and look at and point to this other guy over here and say, he's in charge. There is a very distinct aspect where black people can sniff BS a mile away. And power dynamics are so important that if you don't have, in a lot of cases, white submission to black leadership, then your multi-ethnicity can feel truncated at best unless you live a bicultural lifestyle. So when people walked in our church, they instantly sensed the power dynamic and said, yeah, you're not in charge, that dude is, right? So what they give up is a sense of dignity and pride. The reason the black church exists, outside of the fact that in uh, the end of the 18th century, that Absalom Jones and Richard Allen were snatched off their knees during a prayer meeting in Philadelphia, thus creating the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Outside of that, the reason that black churches persist is because it's the one time a week that black people can go where their dignity is not assaulted. It's the one time a week they can go where they can put on, most African-Americans have blue-collar jobs, so we go into the work field wearing our work clothes and our uniform, but on Sundays we get to dress up and feel like somebody. And when you get to a church that doesn't affirm that, where you get to a church where an event happens and you don't feel that affirmed, then what you're giving up is that feeling of home. And let's just be real, it's a lot of black people that have zero interest in the multi-ethnic church. Zero interest, and that's okay. I'm gonna be the one to say that's. Oh, I'm a multi-ethnic church planner. I've given my life to multi-ethnicity. And brother, if you feel called to stay in the black church, then praise God. But what African Americans who choose to be in a multi-ethnic church give up is a lot of camaraderie and brotherhood with those people because they don't understand why you would abandon your own. Those are all very hard questions that we've got to deal with and count the cost of before we go into something like this. Well, speaking of the black church, uh, it kind of leads well into my next question. I'll give you a little bit of backstory just to... Make just it quick, bit. brother. I'm going to do it. Uh, so I work for a crew, a uh, campus ministry. We have ethnic-specific ministries uh, for a multitude of different races. Um, me personally, I do not agree with them. I don't think they are effective. We currently have around 1% black staff, um, and you can see... You can see the that lower income minorities suffer more um, in these kind of separate ministries, and that's something I've been vocal about. What I've come up against is paternalism, mm -hmm. and people kind of saying, "Hey, we need these things." Even though I'm black, hey, black people need these things um, because they need a safe place. Mm -hmm. um, but I happen to work in St. Louis, where I hear uh, more racist comments towards white folks than black folks. And so I wanted to, you to talk about a little bit about the, how we can help our white brothers and sisters identify paternalism mm -hmm. um, in those kind of statements, but also um, kind of the minority's call 
to cross cultures as well. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. those are my two questions. So going back to something Pastor Chandler said this morning, you, uh, and I would say it in my own way, you don't know what you don't know until you know what you don't know. Meaning that exposure and education is going to expose us and, and, and uh, uh, uncover the veil from our eyes concerning the things that we do and do not know. And oftentimes I find that it's, it's the, it's the uh, difference between a tornado and a hurricane. Social media tends to be like uh, a tornado. It blows in very hot, very fast, very fearful, leaves a ton of damage, rather than the hurricane, which is the cumulative effect of wind and rain. When the way that people change is, is the cumulative effect, right? People rarely change for good after one strong uh, movement, right? So what I would say is in order for our white brothers and sisters to change, let me first say, I don't think the burden of that is on us. To take a page out of Brother Baldwin's book, it's not our job to change the minds of white people right? But we can be part of that constant force that's always pushing them to expand their limits. Now, when it comes to uh, the kind of health and safety of African Americans in that space, uh, brother, you don't need to walk around and feel the weight and the burden of speaking for every black person because you don't represent every black person. You don't need to feel the weight and the burden of being the authoritative voice on every issue that happens with race in the spaces that you are because you're not there, right? And also, we need to know our limits. There are places in cities that I can't go to, but we pray for brothers and sisters of peace who are in those places to link up with us to expand our missional reach so that the gospel might get there as well. Um, And so what I would say to an organization that's looking to do that is basically you're using your minority staff. You're not loving them because if you really love them, you would let them run in the lanes that God has called them to do rather than pugilistically and utilitarian like putting them in places that you need, right? So I would encourage you, man, keep going. I know some crew staff, man, some godly men and women that are doing some awesome work. Keep your head up, Doc. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's my, also my coworker. So one quick question I had was just about um, ethnic Pacific ministries. And just like, because I'm learning more about it, I've mm-hmm. never, like, uh, I got involved with crew, so my my opportunities were pretty diverse. Um but just, yeah, what are your views on ethnic Pacific ministries? And do you feel that is something that is necessary or not? I know I'm, I kind of think I know what you will say, but I want to hear, I guess, yeah, what your thoughts you, are. You're trying to put me in a corner, dude. And I can't answer this in two and a half minutes. Here's what I say. I would say, um, I would say uh, essentially that in regards to crew, there's ministries like Impact that are really powerful, that do a lot of work. Um, and there's ministries that exist in the Greek systems on many campuses that are crew that tend to be predominantly white. Um, I would say this in short, especially on college campuses, because college campuses aren't the actual representation of many neighborhoods that people live in. Um, I'm actually, me, myself, I'm okay with ethnic-specific ministries. Uh, What I'm not okay with, as a place that serves as a safe haven for people, people of color because of the assault that many of them feel in their churches, I'm okay with that. Um, I would say that the ideal is for us to worship and get together and to be together in a dwelling unity. But I would say that if, if that's the ideal and we're moving toward that, and if ethnic-specific ministries allow people of color in places where they otherwise may or may not have heard the gospel to hear the gospel and grow in the image and likeness of Jesus, then I would say that that's the first step in moving them toward that heavenly reality. Does that make sense? So I'm not for or against, but I do think that sometimes, depending on the context, they're necessary to move people along the pipeline of discipleship. One more question. Last one. Sorry, y'all. I'll catch up with you after. Uh, I do community ministry. Uh, I represent around 3,000 to 5,000 people online. What events attract uh, blacks? What, because when, uh, I'm in uh, laundromats, Applebee's, Panera Bread, Meyer League. But if I do arena football, I get blacks. Is there a particular avenue that just draws blacks. Yeah. Uh, I would encourage you, brother. What's your name? Charles. Wonderful. I would encourage you that um, using the term blacks feels very blunt. 
African-American is probably a, a better word to use in a lot of ways, coming from uh, a white brother or sister. I think the first thing I would encourage you is continue to press. Um, I think events are good. Um, I don't know your context, so I'm not sure. Arena football is interesting to me, which lets me know that there's some, uh, there's some contextual uh, impulses that might change how I answer this. But whatever you typically think about when you're going to try to be in black space or uh, have African-Americans as friends, I would want to know why you're going into those spaces. Is it only because we want these people in our church for the sake of having them in our church? Or are we, I think, using the gospel imperative of friendship as the fundamental reason why we're going into those spaces? And if we're going to build friendships, then I would say that your friendships will govern where and what spaces that you go into because your friends of a different color would know this question, answer to this question a lot better than I would. Good question. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Visit us at ERLC.com to subscribe or find us on iTunes or Google Play. And don't forget to join us next week as we hear from a panel of people who were a part of the civil rights movement 50 years ago.